Welcome back to the podcast on Binding the Bible. This is episode 141, The Overlap of the Ages. And in this episode, I would like to take the opportunity for us to discuss what the Easter season actually means for the church and for the world. In the church calendar, we celebrate the resurrection. We celebrate the Easter season for several weeks after just Easter Sunday. And looking at the resurrection is something that I believe should transform our world far more than it actually does. And what I want to do in this episode is beginning with a discussion Jesus has with Martha in John 11 about the resurrection itself. I want us to look a little bit into the New Testament about how the New Testament writers understand what I've titled this episode as the overlap of the ages. Um, Some scholars refer to this as the already and the not yet. And that is that Jesus brought in particular realities by by God raising him from the dead in the middle of history and has more or less ushered the end back into the present. And what that actually means then for the way that Christians faithfully witness to Jesus means that we live out in the present time what we all know will be fully brought to its completion at the actual end. And so learning to live as if the end has already happened is a transformative way of thinking, and it is clearly a transformative way of living. And it's something that I don't think the majority of Christians in churches today fully understand. And so I just want to talk about it. I want us to recognize how the principalities and powers work against this kind of idea, which might be part of the explanation for why so few Christians, in my experience, um, have even grasped this idea, much less attempted to live by it. And so I want to dive into this. I think this will be a rich discussion. It's one that I have been thinking about for several months, and I'm glad to finally have the perfect place to put it in the podcast. And so I offer to you um, the overlap of the ages. I'd like to begin this week's episode just by reading um, John 11, 21 through 27, which is an interaction Jesus has with Martha uh, surrounding the death of her brother Lazarus. And so here's what we read in John eleven twenty one. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Now, what I want to do is just focus for a second on verses 24 and 25 of the passage that I just read. Martha says to Jesus, I know that my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus then says to her, I am the resurrection. 
Now, most of you listening to this podcast may already know this story. You know that several moments later, Jesus calls to Lazarus. He comes out of the tomb. He's wrapped in grave clothes. He tells the servants to cut the clothes away and let the man go free. And it's this, it's almost a um, prophetic or a sign rather of something that is yet to come. We know that Jesus performs many signs in the gospel of John. This last of Jesus's signs is one of the clearest indicators of what he himself is going to do. But I don't want us to miss what's happening, particularly the tense of the verbs that are used here. Martha says, I know that my brother will rise again, in the resurrection on the last day. Martha is stating what all Jews believed. They believed there would be a resurrection of all people at the end of time, at the end of history. And God would decide then who were the faithful ones who would be ushered into everlasting life and who were the unfaithful ones who would be sent away into eternal punishment. This was simply the belief and Martha is stating this belief verbatim to Jesus. But when Jesus responds to her and says, I am the resurrection, he's not saying the resurrection is something that's going to happen in the future. He's saying he is the resurrection, not just him, but him in the present. And so what Jesus does in the present is a guarantee. It's a promise of something that is going to happen in the future. It is a sign of a future reality that is guaranteed to take place. In fact, when the New Testament speaks of God raising Jesus from the dead, it's spoken about as a vindication. It's spoken about as this is a promise of something that the Lord has chosen to do to prove to the world that Jesus all along had been in the right. And that those who associate themselves with Jesus will also be shown in the end to have been in the right. And what's happening in John 11 is Jesus is taking something that everybody thought was going to be a future reality and he's bringing it into the present. This is in fact what the Easter season is all about. The Easter season is the belief and the pronouncement with such confidence that because God was willing to raise one man in the middle of history... He can so radically transform the lives of those who follow this man in the present that it will guarantee their their future outcome with him in the end. In fact, Paul does this in some of his writings. Romans 8 is a perfect example. Paul's writing to the Roman church. He says, for those whom the Lord foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. This is some of Paul's most famous language for how he understands the Christian life. We are to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are to be transformed into the kinds of people who look like Jesus, who embody Jesus in the way we live. He goes on, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30 of Romans 8, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, glorification is a word that's often used by Christians to describe the end result of the process of growing in conformity to Christ. One day we will be with Jesus. We will be like him for we will see him as he is. We will see him face to face and we will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We will become like Jesus, but that process isn't yet complete. We are a work in progress, as Paul will say to the Philippian Christians. But what Paul's saying here to the Roman Christians is really interesting. He said, if he's predestined you, he's called you, 
if he's called you, he's justified you. He's made you righteous, declared you to be righteous, but those whom he's declared to be righteous, he also glorified. Well, glorification isn't yet something that's happened. It's something that will happen. But Paul is saying he is so confident in the work that God is going to do in you that he can speak about that future reality as if it's already happened. And we had Lee Camp on the podcast about a year and a half ago. Lee Camp was the author of the book Scandalous Witness, a little political manifesto for Christians. I believe I published that conversation on the podcast December 17th of 2020, maybe. I, I'm not exactly sure. I'm, I'm blanking on exactly when I had him on there. But I was looking back over Lee's book today, and he has a great discussion of this. And I just want to read a several paragraphs Uh, maybe a page and a half actually, so more than several paragraphs, but of a discussion he has about this perspective, this confidence of something that is going to happen in the future that it can be spoken of as, as already being a reality in the present. And here's what he says. So he says he's talking about the inaugurated kingdom, the kingdom of God that God has already declared is happening now. It's been brought in by by the person of Jesus. And he says, the inaugurated kingdom of God provides a proleptic political stance. Proleptic is a grammatical term in which a future event is so sure to come, so sure to be the case that it is spoken of in the present tense. Okay, here's exactly what we're saying about what Paul's doing, what I think Jesus is saying in John 11. As an illustration, camp goes on, when our boys were young, I was ready one morning to drive them to school. Standing in the kitchen with our 10-year-old second-born David, I shouted up the stairs to his older brother, Chandler, I'm in the car. David quietly replied, no, you're not, Dad. You're standing in the kitchen. David, I replied impatiently, that was a proleptic statement. So sure of what was to come, even if still in the future, I spoke of it in the present tense. This is the proleptic voice. It is one way of describing the vocation of the Christian church in the world. It is the key to Christian ethics and indeed the key to understanding much of the New Testament itself. Christian discipleship calls us to a proleptic stance in which we embody and bear witness to the world that is coming. We labor now, plowing and sowing and watering and reaping the varied first fruits of that still coming kingdom. The coming kingdom entails a shared abundance and unencumbered generosity. Thus, we practice generosity and hospitality even now in the present. The coming kingdom entails the unlearning of war. Thus, we learn the counsels of peace now. The coming kingdom entails the righting of all wrongs by truth-telling in suffering love. Thus, we tell the truth, practice suffering love, and right wrongs now. In contrast, political realism assumes that the brokenness of the world is most real. The political realist insists that interests must always be balanced by counter-interests and coercive power must always be checked by counter-coercive power and, when necessary, that threats be checked by the threat of or actual employment of violence. But the gospel claim that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated redefines reality. It redefines what is most real. What is most real is not the scheming of tyrants or the lies of those in power. 
What is most real is not that might makes right or that greatness is defined by the size of one's arsenal. What is most real, we Christians claim, is the power of God revealed in one who suffers in love and trusts that right has been made right, not through might, but through mercy, repentance, and resurrection. Christianity proclaims that Jesus of Nazareth, crucified under Pontius Pilate, was raised bodily from the dead. Moreover, we proclaim that Easter shall become a universal historical event. The resurrection of Jesus is not a merely religious claim. The resurrection of Jesus is an inherently political claim. To say that the dead shall be resurrected is not a claim about going to heaven. It is a claim, first and foremost, that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated and that the imperialist arrogance that humiliated and tortured the Son has been overcome such that the ways of the Son are honored in glorious vindication. Now, Camp is getting at something that I think, as he said too, is the key to ethics and the key to understanding much of the New Testament itself. It is what I am calling the overlap of the ages, what some authors or scholars call the already and the not yet, or in the title of the chapter from which I read um, from Lee Camp, the end of history has already begun. It is this idea that since everyone was expecting the resurrection of all people to happen at the end of history, but that God chose to vindicate or to show as righteous one person in the middle of history, then all who are connected to that one person live out the end of history's realities in the present. And so as Lee Camp said, since we know in the end that the Lord will teach the nations, they will unlearn the practices of war. Well, that means since that's how the end is going to be, that's how the final totality of the, the end of all things is going to be, and God brought that end into the present, then those who testify to the person of Jesus testify that that way of living, the way of peace, the way of harmony, the way of refusal to go to war, the ways of refusing to use violence or coercion or manipulation to bring about desired ends. We testify to the resurrection of Jesus when we choose in the present to live out the fact that in the end, those things will no longer hold sway over the world. We testify to that world. We testify to that coming resurrection by choosing in the present to live that way. And this is why much of the New Testament is sprinkled with language with, but which both tells us as Christians who and what we are, but then also exhorts us to live those things out in the world. So in Revelation 7, for example, which is a passage I'm studying this week for, for our church, I, I plan to preach from Revelation 7. It's one of the, the readings that we have in our lectionary. We know in Revelation that we are clothed in white robes. Christians are clothed with Christ or clothed in white robes, which is Revelation's way of describing that reality. And yet, to the church in Sardis in particular, John exhorts, or rather the Spirit through Jesus through the Spirit exhorts that those who conquer, those who overcome, those who are victorious in the end will be clothed in white robes. And so the question Revelation is posing is, are we clothed in white robes? Yes. Will we one day be clothed in white robes if we overcome? Also, yes. It is an already and a not yet reality. 
we are already clothed with Christ, we will one day be clothed with Christ. Here's a strange one that oftentimes gets overlooked. It's in Revelation, I'm sorry, it's in Romans chapter 13. Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. That's also an image that John uses, or Jesus rather, in the letter to Sardis, in the words that he um, expresses to them. But here's what he says, why it's important to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, what a strange turn of phrase, right? Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Question, are the Romans saved? Yes. I mean, what does Paul say in in Romans chapter 1? It was necessary for me to preach the gospel. I was eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And who are those in Rome who are receiving Paul's words? They are saints. They are those who are called. They are those who are Christians. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 8? Those who were predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So these people are saved. But Paul is saying salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So there is an ordering of salvation. There's a, we are often called the first fruits of salvation, but Paul is saying there is an ultimate salvation that is to come. We are the first fruits of that, a proof, a guarantee that more is to come, but we have the reality now. And I know that I, I hope I'm, I'm making this clear. Um, in Galatians 1, I guess, is another example where Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul does not intend for us to believe that the present evil age is this age, and then the age to come is is heaven, and therefore he's come to deliver us. He's come to pull us out of this world and transplant us into heaven. No, rather, the book of Galatians very adamantly expresses what present-day living looks like if you've been transferred out of this evil age. And when Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 1, he talks about we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, we have been transformed, transferred from one domain, one way of living, one way of thinking, one way of operating, and we've been transplanted into another way of being, another way of thinking, another way of believing, another way of operating. And those two realities overlap. They exist simultaneously. And one of the primary tools and... and um manners of destruction of the principalities and powers is to make us as Christians doubt that living this way will actually ever work in the real world or will ever get things done. Um, I watch this happen all the time when it comes to Christians looking at partisan politics and believing that the way you play the game is according to the broken system of our partisan political structure. 
So you get people who get frustrated when they put their eggs in one basket to vote for a particular candidate and someone else who doesn't agree with that candidate challenges their loyalty to Jesus by saying, how could you possibly vote for this person? And people go back and forth and they get upset about what you're accusing them of and the way they're choosing to operate. But what's typically happening under the surface is that people are putting more or less stock in the ways the systems work in this world and assuming that this world's way of working are the only tools with which Christians um, have to use. And I do think it's necessary for us to actually challenge this idea because this isn't exactly what's going on. In fact, Paul says so much in Galatians, I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 1. He's talking about Jesus and he says, what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Paul introduces again that there are two ages, one is to come, and yet one has been brought into the present. And how did that happen? Through the great power of his might when he, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places. But the way we talk so many times as Christians today is that many Christians think, okay, good. Yes, sometime when I die, sometime when Jesus returns, we're going to be raised with him. Well, Paul doesn't say that. Paul says in the very next chapter of Ephesians that God has already raised us up and has already seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. So he said this idea of what you imagine is going to happen in the future God has already made a reality in the present. And this is how we testify to the rulers and authorities of their defeat. This is how we testify to the world that the ways of Christ are superior to the ways of this fallen world. And it calls Christians to live in such a way that this is how we verify the proof of the resurrection. It's actually the lifestyles of the Christians. And Lee Camp goes on in, in this chapter that I was reading from to describe how the early church used the church's new way of living, used the church's compassion for the poor. They used the church's rejection of imperialistic might and power and money. And they used the church's witness toward the life of Jesus that shaped the church's life as evidence that Jesus's way of living and the vindication that God showed the world by raising that person from the dead meant that the church was truly testifying that there is a better and another way to live. I love that. I mean, you love reading stories about how the church faithfully carried out what Jesus carried out on the earth and it took the notice of the authorities. But if the church itself by its way of living, can testify and can bear witness to the transforming power of the resurrection, then the way the church lives can also do the opposite. It can cause people to look at the resurrection or listen to the claims of the resurrection and choose to reject them 
under the heading that the church and those who claim to hold to such a view, their lives don't look any different than the rest of the world. Now, that's a sobering thought, and it's a humbling thought. It's a thought that I actually think holds water, and it is one of the primary reasons why I continue to strike this same chord. What we are dealing with in the overlap of the ages is this promise, this confidence that Christians have so much that the end really will right all wrongs, that in the end, there really will be no more war, that in the end, justice will truly come to all those who have waited for it and who have longed for it. And for Christians today in the present, we believe in the resurrection. We believe that the end, that verdict That reality, that time when all wrongs are righted has been brought into the present and we are exhorted and encouraged then to put our confidence and all of our our eggs in that basket, to choose to live now as pointers, as an evidence, as a direction, as a sign of what we know is to come. Same with Jesus. Jesus knew what Martha thought. I know my brother will be raised on the last day along with everybody else. And Jesus said, Martha, we need to start talking about that reality in the present. And in order to show you what I'm talking about, I will in fact raise your brother right now. This is the reality that the New Testament embraces. The New Testament says that in Christ, we have been made alive. We have been buried with him through baptism And we have been raised to new life with him through the resurrection. That new life that Paul is talking about in Romans 6 when he says that, it has nothing to do with heaven when we die. It has to do with the resurrection life of Jesus coming from heaven to earth and empowering people in the present while still on earth with a new way of ordering their lives, with a new way of looking at their communities with a new way of thinking about themselves, with a new way of them treating their neighbors, with a new way of them ordering their communal life, with a new way for them to look at society, with a new way for them to understand the way God chooses to defeat sin and death in the world and advance his purposes. It comes through self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying for one's enemies kind of love. If that reality doesn't grip the hearts of people such that they too begin to love and strive for self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying for one's enemies kind of love in their own lives, that is primarily because they do not understand the basic tenets of their own faith. I feel like that's where we are as a church. I feel like that's where we are. I feel like Christians many times get sucked into thinking that the way we advance agendas on this earth is through lawmaking. And we fall victim to thinking that the only way to bring about positive um, movements of God on the earth is through the democratic system that we have in this country. And it's so sad and so discouraging Because so little can actually be accomplished that way and so much more can actually be accomplished through us learning to be transformed into being able to love our enemies and choosing not to judge them, but rather to self-sacrificially lay down our lives for them. 
to ask Jesus to grow us in compassion and kindness and humility, which are several of the lists Paul uses to his various churches to talk to them about the kinds of things they are to clothe themselves with. He says in some sections, you have put on Christ. You have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then he goes on to say, and now I want you to clothe yourselves with humility, gentleness, patience, kindness. These are attributes of Christ that we are exhorted exhorted to put on to demonstrate the new reality that we actually have in Christ. But the reason we're doing that is so that in the present, we can testify to the belief that we know in the end, selfishness will not win. Injustice will not win. Violence will not win. Those things have been defeated at the cross of Christ. If we actually believe that, then what that means is we cannot choose those means by which to bring about good in this world. Because those means are dead. They've been judged to be unjust and are not worthy of resurrection power. The only things in this world that are worthy of resurrection power, the only things in this world that are worthy of God pouring out resurrection power are things that Jesus embodied. Compassion, humility, patience, kindness, truth, justice. When those things carried out through the spirit in the power of Jesus are exemplified in this world, God pours out resurrection power on those places. And I think the church is fundamentally set up to be the kind of place where we learn how to live this way in community. We learn what it means with other people, many of whom we know or or who we are getting to know, and learning to trust how to work out reconciliation in real relationships, how to handle unfulfilled expectations in relationships, how to deal with stubborn people when we really wish that they would just snap out of it, how we learn to bear with one another in love. How we learn to demonstrate compassion or patience with other people. It's, it's enough in our world today, honestly, for the church to get sucked into thinking that the Christian faith is primarily an individual affair. It is so sad and so disheartening to realize the number of Christians who think that because they spend their time reading the Bible or they spend their time praying Um, that they're growing in their relationship with Christ, even though real relationships around them are crumbling. They are being passive aggressive with people. They are unable to set up new boundaries with people um, who are crossing them. Those who have hot tempers and who are quick to tell anybody and everybody what's on their mind whenever they're displeased, they need to grow in their ability to be compassionate and gracious, to be a bit more soft-spoken in the way they present what it is that is upsetting them. But then you have others in the church who would never tell you what they think, even if you paid them. They're very timid. They're very shy. They have opinions, but they'll never let you know them. Those individuals, through the power of the Spirit, need to grow in their capacity, willingness, and ability to speak up when they see things that they don't think ought to be that way. 
What typically happens in the church, though, is that those who are boisterous or who are loud or who are not afraid of what other people think, those are the people whose concerns get voiced all the time. And so typically they're the people that get pacified. They're the people who get their way. They're the people who grow hardened in their thoughts that the church really exists for me and whatever I want to happen in the church is exactly what's going to happen. And you see this happen all the time. And pastors sometimes don't know what to do with people like that. Pastors are broken, sinful, um, sometimes emotionally immature people as well and have to work through people unfairly critiquing them or unfairly judging them or telling them that if they were a good pastor, they would treat the people this way. And the pastors have to be able to stand their ground but also think through are some of these accusations founded? Do I need to think about what it means to be compassionate and gracious with this person in my midst? But sadly, these things don't often get talked about. Instead, it's we grumble, we complain, we bicker to another person. I can't believe that they're acting this way. Instead of saying, how does Jesus want us to transform this local body? What types of things about the way we know the end is going to be should transform the way we choose to live in the present? What does it look like? How does it work? And what should we hope and expect to see in a fallen society who doesn't actually believe in Jesus, doesn't actually have the, the, the scriptural narrative or the kingdom narrative to drive what it is that they're choosing to do? How would we expect them to act? And then we want to compare and contrast, I think. Is the church more equipped and more prepared to live in the overlap of the ages, to live the end in the present than any of the rest of the people in our world? And I think this, again, is where the principalities and powers muddy the scene. They convince the members of the church that to live peaceably when the rest of the world is at war will never accomplish anything. It feels too weak, too insignificant. If the church had a little more power, if the church was able to persuade those who make the decisions and put one of our own in a positions of power and prominence, well, then we could see God's ways working in the world. And I'd like to submit to you that for a first century homeless guy who had a few friends, all of which abandoned him when it got difficult, he is the one who radically upended the Roman Empire and therefore every empire in this world to bring about the greatest good our world has ever known. We know that that is the case because God raised that person from the dead. He declared to the entire world, this is the kind of person who in the end will be vindicated. This is the kind of person who in the end will be justified this is what real justice looks like. It looks like this man's life. And in order to make sure you all know that, I'll give you a sneak peek into the future. There's no guessing about the kind of person whose life will be vindicated in the end. It's that guy's life. And just to prove it to you, I'll raise him from the dead now so that you all will know exactly what it looks like to live faithfully and full of justice. The church then is the community of people who affirm that Jesus was the one person whom God vindicated and that Jesus's way of life 
is the kind of life that all human beings are to aspire to. In order to give us the ability to live that out, God in his grace makes true of us what is true of Jesus. And then he sets us back into community and says, now live that out. You've been freed. You don't have anything to prove. You're not here to justify yourself and justify your own existence. I love you. I accept you. Now live this way. This is actually what it means to be the church, to be a community of Jesus, to be Jesus's body on earth and show the world what Jesus would look like if he was made up of people like in our churches. In other words, if Jesus's body took on communal form, this is what it would look like. And it's a radical picture. It's a hopeful picture. And it's also one that shows us that if we choose to live instead in a way that is self-centered and passive-aggressive or aggressive-aggressive or boldly outspoken or selfish or inconsiderate or judgmental, then we are testifying to the world that we don't really believe that the person of Jesus was the one that God raised. Instead, we think that there are just perfectly fine, perfectly natural ways of being in the world. Everybody else is judgmental. Everybody else is critical. Everybody else just speaks their mind. Why can't we? Because everybody else in the world thinks that that's the way to accomplish good in the world. Christians know that isn't true. The way to accomplish good in the world is to follow the ways of the one whom God declared was actually good. And that's the person of Jesus. And so we, get, we never get out of this circle. We never get out of the call, as Paul said to the Romans, to be conformed to the image of his son. We are not yet like Jesus as individuals or as church bodies. Our sinners and outcasts flocking to our churches because they know that when they come to our churches, they're going to receive compassion, grace, kindness and empathy that they are not receiving from anywhere else in the world. I heard a sermon this past week and it was very convicting and the preacher was speaking from the book of Esther where Mordecai is telling Esther that perhaps she has been appointed for such a time as this to stand before the king and to plead on behalf of the Jewish people so that the wicked Haman doesn't um, have them all wiped off the face of the earth. And Mordecai expresses to Esther that perhaps she has been placed here for such a time as this to bring redemption, to bring salvation for the people. But then Mordecai drops a strange line in the middle of his phrase to Esther and he says, and yet if redemption doesn't come through you, it will come from somewhere else because we believe that God is faithful and we believe that God cares for his people. And we believe that when people are disenfranchised and held under the thumb of powers and rulers, that he will set them free. And if the people that God has appointed and that God has privileged with the opportunity to save those people, if those individuals don't step up to the plate and take advantage of the opportunities that God's given them to care for the poor and the disenfranchised, then deliverance will come from somewhere else. It may not come through those people. 
which means two things. Number one, that means that God is continually faithful and is not dependent upon his fallen um, human, human creatures to bring about his will. But that also means that if we see ourselves as God's people and we do not properly care for those that God cares for, then he will bypass us. He won't use us. He won't let us be a part of his great work. In fact, he might bring about deliverance from someplace else. And that does even mean from someplace outside the church. It could be from sec- some secular group. It could be from some uh, people who do not even claim to know him. It doesn't matter. We want to be on the right side of this. We want to be partnering with Jesus to set the world free and to be part of the glory that he seeks to pour out on the world. But that is not a guarantee that it will happen just because we want to be a part of it. We have to embody the ways of Christ in order to bring about the works of Christ. His ways are every bit as important as the truth that we profess and the life that we are offering to people. And that is what I think it means to live in the overlap of the ages. We testify in the present to what we know with confidence God will do in the end because he's already done it in the present. He already raised one person from the dead in the middle of history so as to mince no words or, and, and confuse no one regarding the kind of person he will vindicate in the end. He's empowered his church by his spirit to be those kinds of people and then to also work tirelessly with the spirit to actually become those kinds of people in the world. And this is why being conformed to the image of Christ is so important. The church gathers for its corporate worship. The church spends its time with one another in order to learn the ways of peace, in order to learn how to deal in a mature way um, with people with whom you disagree with how to learn to grow in compassion, kindness, patience, generosity, learning to become more like Jesus. Not sitting in a pew, receiving a sermon that reminds you that you are following the right way and the people around you aren't. Like that's not what it means to be the church. What it means to be the church is that we rejoice in all that God has done in and through um, the person of Jesus for our benefit, and then to ask him how he wants to continually transform us so that we more accurately represent Jesus in the world and to the world. That's what it means. That's what being his follower is actually all about. That's all that I actually have for this week. I'm quite certain I'll bring these themes up again as we continue to talk through various components, but the overlap of the ages. Um, This is where we live. This is, I think, a big key to understanding the book of Revelation. There's a lot of passages that talk about what seems to be present reality. And then if you read a verse or two later, you think, well, that's not yet fully happened. Maybe that's not going to happen until later. And you might be right. And so there's there's an interplay back and forth between is this now? Is this later? Well, maybe it's both. And there is this overlap of the ages in which we live. And this is the exhortation that I think John wants the church to have. This is the way Peter writes when he writes his letters, and this is certainly the way Paul writes. 
And so if you've got any questions or thoughts about this, I'd love to hear them. Um, I haven't heard from too many people over the last several weeks, which is fine. Maybe uh, things I'm saying are clear or maybe um, you've got other things on your plate. But if there are questions you have, thoughts or comments, I'd love to hear them from you um, for us to continue to see the direction we want to take the podcast. Um, but I'm really thankful for you listeners and and love the opportunity to be able to talk about these things and to to wrestle through big topics with you. I think that's all we have for this week. I hope you have a fantastic week, and we'll talk to you next time.